And turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in, well, we'll begin reading verse 1. I was going to pick up verse 9, but I think we'll read from verse 1 following. Acts chapter 10, I'll be in the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word declares, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he came, became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the corners descending to him and led down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now all Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called uh, together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I myself am also a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, For what reason have you sent me for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting up until this hour. At the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose name, surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us, 
who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. We're going to stop there this morning. This doesn't seem fair. The rest of the story is only five verses long, but we're going to stop there because that's next week. Last week we looked at the first character of this very critical event, um, perhaps one of the highlights, if you will, well, certainly one of the highlights of the early church, uh, probably uh, on par with Pentecost in its importance in understanding the work that Christ has. Uh, intended not just for one people, but for all peoples. And so I would consider chapter 10 to be right up there with chapter 2 in the book of Acts. Uh, We don't hear as much about it, um, but it is critical. Um, Without chapter 10, most all of us, I think, in here would have largely uh, been missing the gospel. But of course, God would not have allowed that because it was his intention from the beginning that the Savior would be not just of one nation or one people group, but of the world. And so we begin to see that truth begin to dawn upon uh, the leadership of the church. And sometimes the leadership of the church is one of the last ones to figure things out. It happens still today, every now and then. Um, I try really hard to stay on top of things, but sometimes I'm just Johnny lately on some issues. But... um, Peter is one of those. He's just kind of behind, and God's going to have to bump him uh, into the full understanding of what God's plan really entails. What is his desire in his commands to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world, not just looking for Jews that are in all those lands, but all men. You're going to go to every creature, as Mark describes. Um, and yes, in the Jewish mind... Um, that's a word they would have understood because they considered most Gentiles, the term they used was dogs. And so when God says, go to every creature, whether it's human or, or canine, go to them with the gospel. That doesn't mean you have to preach the gospel to your dog, okay? Uh, that's what they thought of non-Jewish people. They thought even less of the half-Jews, half-Gentiles, Samaritans. And so they had to be a little concerned um, about the incursion of the gospel already into Samaria uh, that we've already studied, and that certainly is an exciting time as well. Um, We come now, and God has uh, a very purposeful experience for Peter. Uh, We looked last week at Cornelius, and why God uh, desired the gospel to begin there among the Gentiles. And we looked a little bit at uh, the preparation in men's hearts And uh, I'm reviewing last week, uh, there was one, remember I told you I was on a very narrow path to communicate, and there was one aspect that I didn't really uh, get to uh, speak uh, very well. I did give you warning against those who teach error, uh, but I also wanted to give a warning uh, regarding those that, yes, they're doing religious activity um, largely out of ignorance and want to know what is it that the Lord wants. That's the question they ask, and they're uh, somewhat in the dark of that and waiting for God to shed light on it and genuinely, honestly asking God um, for that light. And Cornelius is such an individual. However, there are other individuals who may be behaving in exactly the same manner, who have exactly the same activity in their life, that they could be described in the exact manner as as Cornelius is described here in chapter 10, have the same testimony, um, and yet they would be those who are not looking for an answer to the question, what is it? They think that they have it. And these are the self-righteous. And Jesus encountered them quite a bit. His uh, main opposition was among the self-righteous, called Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law. And theirs is a very different perspective because they are not living it out in search of the one true and living God and how best to worship Him. What is, he, what is it you want? What is it, Lord? What am I missing? 
They ask whatever question that crosses them. They consider themselves to have completely figured it out, and they are completely, entirely relying upon their good works. And those individuals we find are some of the most difficult to reach. That while Cornelius is just anxiously waiting, what is it? Just tell me. If you know what it is, tell me. Those are exciting people. They're, they're wanting to generally worship God. They'll do that to the extent that they have revelation and they simply require a, to have more exposure to it and to really be presented the gospel. But the self-righteous individuals are very different. Many of them knew the truth. They knew God's word. But they chose to rely upon themselves rather than seeking to trust in God. And so while we look at these two individuals, we might see Cornelius and a Pharisee and say, well, these two kind of look alike in their activity of worship, and yet we see within their heart a great difference. And it really is borne out by what happens when they are confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ. The one says, well, I'm doing enough to please God. I'll get by. God has to be accepting of how much I've already done for him, right? The other one is going to come like Cornelius and say, what is it, Lord? What, what more? Is, there, is I missing something along the way? And by the way, we're going to encounter another individual like this a little later on in the book of Acts who um, didn't get the full story. Even though he was from Jerusalem and was a Jew, his name was Apollos. And he didn't get the full story either. But as soon as he heard the story, he was, boom, I'm there. And we're going to encounter individuals like that in our life. It may seem more and more rare in these days. But you'll encounter individuals that are just ready. And oh, it is so important that we just give it out. Give the gospel to them. Well, this morning we want to now come to the second individual that is involved in this magnificent account of the gospel coming into uh, the Gentile world. And... Uh, you can tell it's important. I'm going to be giving three or four messages to its content, uh, to studying it. And that second individual is Peter. And we have already somewhat introduced some of the aspects that we want to really nail down this morning in God's work to have to prepare Peter. I am certain that God is still doing what he has promised to do. He says that he has given the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I'm convinced that there are still some who are responding to that conviction by that question, what is it, Lord? What do I do about this? How do I resolve this? I'm equally convinced that within the community of believers, we have some of the very, very same issues that Peter carried with him into this activity that God has called us to, the mission of the church of reaching the lost, the message of Jesus Christ. And before we look into this, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the privilege of opening your word and the time we have to look into it. And Lord, we uh, pray that you might certainly guard this time, but that you might also, just as we ask for your spirit to do that, that we also ask him to illuminate it to help us to know your word and that it might be communicated effectively and accurately, but that it also might be received with authority that it carries, that it is something that we must heed, that we must uh, obey. And Lord, we pray that your spirit might have great liberty during this time, that we are submissive people, that he can work in us to convict if necessary, to encourage, to help, to strengthen, to comfort. And Lord, we trust in you today to challenge us through your word. We thank you again for it, for all the truths it discloses. None greater than your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the light. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to Peter's vision. And as I shared two weeks ago, we already see Peter starting to uh, loosen up a little bit. He's been confined to Jerusalem. And that's where all the activity is. Even after the persecution that came under Saul and all the Christians were scattered, Acts goes out of its way to say, but that didn't include the apostles. 
The twelve remained right there in Jerusalem. We have seen all the way through this text of Acts, or, yeah, of Acts that Luke has showed us that if anyone wanted to be taught by the apostles, they had to come to Jerusalem. It was that flow from the regions of Judea into Jerusalem. If you had your sick, if you wanted to hear the truth, no matter what your interest was, you wanted to have interaction with the apostles, you had to come to Jerusalem. Finally, finally, we have word coming into Jerusalem that all these people, all this activity of God is going on. And, and of course, none greater than, than Philip and, and the evangelists out there in Samaria and with the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and we find that Peter is now interested in finding out what's going on out there. I'm going to visit out there and see what's going on. I've been on the Temple Mount. He's been out there looking around, seeing what's happening. And, and sure enough, God gives him opportunity to perform miracles out there. Uh, and we find him residing now on the coast of Israel uh, at Joppa and uh, setting up there and uh, in all places of Simon the Tanner. We talked about how that would have made him unclean, that he couldn't go back to the Temple Mount for a few days. Even if he traveled directly from Joppa back to Jerusalem, he wouldn't have been able to go on to Solomon's porch and teach for, for a little season until he had been purified. And so uh, here's Peter willing at least to take that step. And here's a brother who has opened up some uh, place for him. And now we find Peter um, in his time with Simon, uh, coming close to mealtime. It's not uh, quite ready. He's very hungry. So he's going to distract himself by going up and maybe uh, laying down for a little while, waiting for the food to get prepared. Um, he, and we go up on the housetop if that seems weird to you. Um, that would be a place that is usually a cooler place that would have had a lot of times a canopy up there or something. Um, very unlike ours, our housetops, or we just never get on top of them. Um, they, they would have done many things on their rooftops of their homes. And so he goes into that, and uh, you might say, well, this is just his hunger talking. And uh, you could easily try to make that argument, I guess. Um, but this is more substantial than just he's really, really hungry and he's willing to eat anything. This is not what this vision is really about. It's really fundamentally not about food, although food is the context that God is going to use. And so uh, he's in there, he falls into a trance. This is not just a deep sleep, but God is getting ready to present some revelation to him in the form of a vision. And of course he sees heaven open and down from heaven comes this great bounty. It says a great sheet. Um, it's held up by the four corners, so he can't really see what's in there. Um, it's laid out before him as a great feast. And, oh, not as a great feast, a future feast. As all of these animals that are all unclean. And if you want to know what that list is, um, you can go in the Old Testament and survey it. I'm not really going to take the time to go through that. You know some of them right away. Um, you know that they, they might... Now I just go dead. Oh, we have got to get into the habit of changing that. Can we switch over to here? It's picking it up on there, but it's not amplifying it to the... Okay, so everyone on podcast, nothing just happened, okay? <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. <clears throat> we'll edit that out, huh? <laughs> so Peter is confronted with all of these animals, not only domestic animals like pigs that we are familiar with, but he's also confronted with... Um, the wild animals that you can't eat and, and that they were forbidden to eat in the Old Testament. And so he's confronted with a command. And the command is very simple. Kill and eat these. Kill and eat. Very simple, right? Is there any confusion here at all about the instruction? Kill and eat these. Uh, the command, obviously, the, the, the provision has come from the heavenly source. Uh, Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. There was no confusion about what God commanded him to do. In terms of the activity that's required. But for Peter, he's being commanded to do something that violates everything he has been taught all his growing up days even into his adulthood, and even from his understanding of God's Word. Let's lay that foundation out there. We're not just talking about 
uh, social mores and, and values or, or familial traditions. We're not just talking about those. We are talking about things. He can go to the Bible and pick out a verse and say, Thou shalt not eat of this. He has substantial evidence from God that this is not something that they were allowed to do. Now, how connected Peter and really the whole generation of Israel was to the purpose of those food laws and why they were to do that, how, how well that's communicated uh, in their history, uh, we can debate to some degree whether he understood the purpose of that, that they were to do that not because of physical reasons, uh, not because there's something inherently evil about those animals, but uh, rather to communicate that you are to come out and be separate from the world and, and that these creatures, uh, you refrain from eating the, as a means of demonstrating that you are not of the nations. That this is the focus of these food laws. And of course, Jesus has already really attacked the food laws and not attacked them. He's really uh, brought into uh, challenge, we'll put it like that, of the implementation of the food laws without the underlying purpose. And so he tells his disciples, it's not what goes into your mouth that's going to defile you, but what comes out of it. Remember that? You guys remember that? Okay, great position now that the Jews had become so focused on the defilement aspect that somehow this defiles me, that this food going in is, is a defilement of me because there's something in that food that's going to hurt me or that makes me spiritually uh, out of tune with God. How many of you are having ham this afternoon? Just one. No, I'm just... <laughs> in their mind, that's what it was. It had boiled down to that. They had lost track in significant ways of the meaning the purposes of God behind the food laws, which was more than just a matter of, of maintaining good health or anything like that, because frankly, some of the foods they weren't allowed to eat are very healthy for you. And we can look at some and say, well, the preparation of those requires more of this and that, but yet some of those that they weren't to eat wouldn't, don't injure you today. The purpose was to keep them separate to signify to them that you are a peculiar people. That is, you are unique in your relationship with God. You are not like the nations. And so God used those food laws not in the fact that, that by eating this kind of meat or this kind of creature that you are defiled by the act, but rather because you have refused to be separate from the nations. You, are, you have come into this covenant agreement with me and you violate that agreement and you're becoming like them. And everything that God establishes with them uh, in much of the social laws uh, was driven by this need to be, come out and be separate, to be righteous, to avoid the idolatry, to avoid the practices of the nations, and to avoid... Uh, be associated with them. And so uh, we're not going to intermarry. We're not going to um, even visit. And Peter's going to bring that up. That we're not going to have this physical contact within their homes. Uh, that we're going to maintain this almost isolation. Certainly the nations can come to you. But you are not going to go to them. That is that you are not going to become like them. They have certain permission. Absolutely to follow your God and to come in to worship your God and become one with your people. And we have some great examples in the Old Testament of that happening. In fact, in the line of Christ, we have several notable ones. But Israel's being separate. And Peter is confronted with this and, and God giving him instructions to do what he has been taught all of his life by every rabbi, every a Pharisee, every teacher, every synagogue, uh, every family among Israel within the land would have fully taught this. And Peter is now being confronted with a God that says, I want you to eat this stuff now. And his answer is predictable. No. 
Really? No? God tells you to do something and you say, no? No, Lord, you're confused here a little bit. Uh, let me back you up and give you a little history. You ever do this to God? No, Lord, uh, you, I don't think you know what you're talking about. This is a mistake. Trust me, God. I know better. All my life, I've never eaten this stuff. It says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And he recognizes that, that these, these are unclean animals. And God says, that's the issue right now in your life. The issue in your life. Is you have failed to see the wonder and the reach of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That when he declared to Israel that in him the law was fulfilled, it was completed, you're no longer held bound to it, that this gave opportunity not only for law-abiding Jews, but for the lawless Gentiles in terms of the Levitical and Mosaic law. Um, they were outside of that. There was no expectation for them. But now, because Christ has met all the requirements of the law for all men, all men now can come. Because it's no longer on your own righteousness that anything is based. And you'd think that here is an apostle here is one who has followed Jesus and heard these words and seen these engagements with the self-righteous Pharisees and heard Christ's teaching, is filled with the Holy Spirit, is actively teaching and leading the church in Jerusalem. And now he's out here in Joppa in the, in, on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house and God's confronting him saying, Listen, my plan is bigger than you can imagine. And here is a man of God confronted with some of his very inner core commitments. Really, they're prejudices, but they're commitments at this point. And his response is that if I choose either to obey God or I choose to reject God and keep to my core commitments. Wow. That's how strong core commitments in your life can become. They'll bring you to the place of saying no to the one who made you, died for you, saved you, the one who you claim to be your Lord. That's how strong core commitments can become. That when you're confronted with the truth, even from the mouth of God himself, your response is no, Lord. You're asking too much of me. This is the way I was raised. This is the way it has to be. This is the way it must be. Um, and we encountered a lot of that when we were studying through First and Second Corinthians, didn't we? No, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it has to be done. I am sure that that is not what God is saying when he commands us to do that or to do that. He must mean that just socially for them, not for us. Why? Because we are that influenced by the philosophies of this world, which could come from places like your parents, like your school, your national identity, your economic identity. There's a, there's a host of sources for this. Some of them even right out of the Bible. And God comes in and makes powerful expectation of us. It says, if you want to serve me and love me, you're going to have to hate your mother and father. What? What? No, Lord. That violates everything. No, in comparison to your love and desire to serve God, no relationship can have priority over it. 
every relationship must be expendable in your life to serve God the way God wants. Everything must be expendable if God requires it of you. And here Peter is confronted with the fact that here your sense of being an Israelite, a good Jewish young, not young man anymore, older man, um, it's got to be sacrificed. I have something bigger. And here I'm going to come in, and God has the authority to come in and to uh, declare something that once was unclean, clean. And he says, I've purified these. I've done that. How did he do that? How does God take what is common and make it uncommon? How does God take what is unclean and make it clean? It is the person of Jesus Christ that has established and accomplished that. What God has cleansed, you must not call common, he is told. And not just once did this happen. Peter is, is a little slow in the uptake too. Kind of, you know, remember, he's just struggling to figure out God's plan even though he's the one with the keys. Supposedly there. Well, yeah. You're the leader. You're the one that needs to demonstrate this opening of the gospel to the Gentiles. Not just once, but three times. God has to go through the same vision with Peter. convince him of this simple truth. And the truth is, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And if you think three times is enough, you haven't read the next verse. The next verse says, Peter wondered at this. What does this mean? <laughs> what could it possibly mean? God wants me to do that. What could he possibly mean by that? He was still struggling with it. Even after three times, even after being told three times what God has declared clean, don't you call common. Don't you dare do that. And after three times, he still didn't get it. He's like, what could it mean? Well, God had prepared the way. He's going to be shown exactly what it means and it's going to have an application that has more to do with what goes into your food and your diet. Uh, what God wants to communicate with you is, is much deeper and more significant than that. Frankly, you can eat what you want or don't eat what you want. That's really not an issue because it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man what comes out of it. But the issue is a heart, a spirit that recognizes that the wonderful working of the power of God is that He desires to reach all men. Even the men you hate the most and have the largest prejudices towards. You know, men that are walking around with turbans and shawls and things like that on their head. Isn't that about it these days? we look at God's declaration that he has died for all men. Peter has to come face to face with that. Does he mean all Jewish men? Maybe he means all the elect. All through the church age, men have tried and too often succeeded theologically with each other to maintain all the prejudices of their society with regard to the gospel by limiting the work of Christ, by limiting its application, by limiting their responsibility to share Christ with all men. We've been doing it very effectively in convincing ourselves, well, if God wants those people saved, He can do it without your help and mine. Wrong! There is only one way there's only one mechanism by which God is used throughout the book of Acts to reach men with the gospel, and it is the church of Jesus Christ. It is us. And as soon as we begin abrogating that responsibility, there is no second avenue. God has demonstrated that. He tells Cornelius, I'm not going to tell you what it is. 
this guy down there, Joppa's going to do that. You head south and get him. From Caesarea by the sea, there's several Caesareas in the Bible. There's Caesarea over in Galilee, where Peter was from. This is Caesarea by the sea, um, which is kind of a royal area where Herod and those guys hung out, and they had really fancy stuff up there. Um, Joppa is where modern day, um, what's the big city in, oh, I can't even think of it now, in Israel today. Tel Aviv, thank you. Um, that's where Tel Aviv is. Is right there, Joppa, and so uh, very active. Take a quick bus ride up there today and visit Caesarea by the Sea. It's our first time we ever found anything with a guy's name on it, written in stone, that people said the guy never existed. Caesarea by the Sea. We found a stone with Pilate's name on it. Pontius Pilate, a guy that everybody. Throughout history, who has denied the scriptures, said that guy never existed. You see, the Bible's wrong. They dug up a rock, and there's Pontius Pilate's name on it, carved in stone. So, Caesarea sent down to Joppa, and uh, Peter's going to be confronted with these men. And, and God says, okay, you're still trying to figure this out. You still don't get it. Don't, 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 don't. There's some guys coming to the door. They're looking for you. Go with them. Don't ask any questions. How's that for direct? Peter's not, you know, he's a fisherman. Let's just be honest. All right? he was, remember that was what they noted about him? These guys are uh, just fishermen, but they've been with Jesus. Not the quickest, sharpest instrument out there, but God's willing to use him and take the time to get through to him what he wants. So Peter, listen, there's some people at the door. You go down, go with them. Don't doubt anything. I sent them to get you. So just doesn't prevent Peter from asking, what do you want? He's still trying to connect the dots. He's still trying to understand, what does this vision have to do with this declaration of God? And what does that have to do with these guys that showed up who obviously aren't Jews? They understand that even a tanner's house they shouldn't go into. So they're going to stand at the door and they're going to call out to him and say, we're looking for Simon Peter. Is he here? Yeah, the commission sent from Cornelius initially weren't allowed in until Peter says, come on in. We're going to feed you. How's you will get going in the morning? Why have you come? I'm still trying to understand. And it's not until he's confronted with a house full of Gentiles. <laughs> See, Cornelius didn't just want to know the truth for himself. We're going to look more at this next week. He wanted, he wanted everyone to know it. He wanted his whole household. He's got his servants, his family. He's got some of the guys that he uh, is their commanding officer. Uh, maybe he's got some of the superior officers. I don't know. But certainly he's got all these people gathered together. Peter shows up and we find Peter finally realizing this is what God was trying to tell me. And having heard the account of what's going to be happening, actually before he heard that, but, but really he concluded that Jesus Christ wants us to tell all people about salvation, that he rose and wants to preach to all people. He has died for all men. Not just for all the men that I like, not just for all the men like me, not for all the Jewish race that were everywhere. No, he died for all men. And so the first thing he has to declare coming into the place in verse 28, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. I finally realized not only... Can I overcome all of the Samaritans and, and the proselytes to Judaism, which are what Philip reached, largely, because um, Ethiopian eunuch had been to Jerusalem to worship. And so, yeah, we're all right with Gentiles who have proselytized to, to Judaism to bring them into Christ. Um, but now, um, if God de declared that all men must be reached with the gospel, if he declared them all, then who am I to limit the field 
Who am I to limit the field? By my prejudices. By my core commitments. I'm convinced that for many of us, when we're confronted in international contexts of lots of, which, by the way, is our, how our country's been described all through history, a melting pot. We are an international nation, unlike most any other nation. My kids are asking me, why is an American a nationality? Or a, what race are you on some application? That was you, Valerie, wasn't it? Here, they got all these races listed, you know, but they don't have American. Well, that's because we recognize that we are a country of many nationalities. When we get into the international settings, how our prejudice, even our interest for our own country, affect us. And we can make up excuses for it, but fundamentally it comes down to our own prejudices. And it's evident in ministry. And not just among the, the laity. Um, it, it's, it's evident among clergy, among missionaries who went out with the gospel and thought that if I'm going to reach these people with Christ, I have to change them not only with the gospel, but I have to change them to be more Western. To make them look and talk and act like me. And we took with us not just the gospel, but a bunch of baggage of our culturalism with us. And we introduced it, and it persists to this day. To the, I mean, I'm going down to tropical countries, and I can't. I can barely survive. I mean, it's so humid, and I'm like, oh man, I don't even want to wear a shirt, let alone. And they're showing up in suit coats, buttoned like this, with a tie, everything. And this is not in a rich country. This is a poverty-stricken Haiti. If you're a preacher, you have to have a suit coat. That's what makes you a preacher, by the way. I could tell here today I'm looking around. Yep. So I'm going to take this off. Because <laughs> a suit coat is it. And we took all this baggage. And, 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 and I'm there, and there's a, there's a Western-style everything. And I'm like, why? Because we we're convinced that our culture, because of its Christian roots, must be the right representation of what it lo should look like if you're a Christian culture. And we took that with us. And in that arrogance and all those core commitments that weren't the gospel, but we made it become almost equal with the gospel. And we carry that. You have that. That our national interests become that which dissuades us from the gospel. We see Peter confronted with the very issues. And finally, he comes to the conclusion. God has finally showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. That is, I cannot consider any man unworthy of the gospel. Even one who's out there killing Christians today, I cannot view them as unworthy of the gospel. That somehow I have a better right to claim it than he had. Because the fact is, I was just as much lost in sin as he is today, back before I knew Christ as my Savior. The same Darkness, the same wickedness, the same corruptness was there in me as much as it is in all of them. And it is simply the grace of God in our lives that has given us the privileged access that they have not had.
Peter understands his role. Finally. He finally realizes that he is a witness. And that, that witness isn't just for Jerusalem. It's not just for Israel. It is for all people. That he is to testify of the fact that one whom the Jews killed, but God raised up the third day, he must declare to all men. With equal fervor, with equal excitement, with equal anticipation of God working among those people. And this took all of this for Peter to finally figure it out. Somewhere on the road between Joppa and Caesarea, as they're heading north, somewhere along there, um, hearing the, these three servants, uh, these three men associated with Cornelius, somewhere along there, it clicked. So by the time he shows up at the door of Cornelius, he says, of course, this is what Jesus meant all that time. This is what his declaration entails. This is why we're supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the world and to every creature. Because there's no partiality with God. We sang a song, Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. And I know we call that a child's song, and we're thinking about little babies, that God loves all of them. But the word children in that song is more correlated with the way John uses the word children, my little children, when he writes to the church. The children of God are irrespective of age. It's about a relationship. Jesus loves his children and has died for them. And lives for them. And every inhabitant on earth, as an image bearer, marred certainly, as one who carries an aspect of God in him, and owes their existence to his work in the Garden of Eden, is one whom God loves. How can we be repulsed by any of them? How dare we be repulsed by any of them? They're the little children that Jesus loved enough to die for. But we don't love enough to go share Christ with them. And I really don't think that we fail to do that because we're afraid of them. I really think the reason we fail to do that is because we're afraid of violating our core commitments against them. Because they're not like me. Whatever that means to you. For Peter... The food issue was just the tip of an iceberg. And it took this whole season for Peter really in direct confrontation by God to get through to him. And the challenge is now laid out to us. We can see evidences of it, but I think seldom do we really grasp just how deep-rooted and how ungodly many of our social and even biblical commitments are. We are committed against sin. Absolutely no doubt about it. And I'll preach against sin here in this pulpit in every kind and shape and form um, whether the world wants to hear it or not, and whether the mayor wants to subpoena my sermons or not, doesn't matter. Homosexuality is a sin. End of discussion. 
Because the Bible says so. Guess what? Jesus died for every homosexual. Let's be clear. They're God's little children. They're just in a different sin than you're in. We can hate the sin, but we cannot be prejudiced against the sinner. Even as they work against us, even as they seek to disrupt, we still proclaim God's truth to them. We still live it out in front of them. We let them spit on us. We let them abuse us. We let them call us names. We let us take them to court. We let them take us to jail. We let them destroy. And still, we will share Christ with them. Just as much as with any other person caught in any other kind of sin, like gossip. Do you have any deep-seated hatred toward gossipy people? Why not? They're terrible sinners. Did you know it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles man? It's what comes out of it. Why don't we log them up there with it? Hmm. You see how we have stratified sin and made some acceptable and some intolerable. And we can point to verses. But fundamentally, when we decide that we choose who hears the gospel and who doesn't, we're saying no to God. When he says, go into all the world and preach to every creature. Are we ready to put our core commitments on the table before God and let him work in them, shift them, maul them if necessary, are we willing to lay out our prejudices and be honest that they exist and that we have been confronted with them right here before us in this passage and it's time that we rose out of the muck and the mire of those, of those suppositions and those uh, prejudices. It's time that we put an end to it. There is only one us and them, and it is us who have received the grace of God and those who have not yet. Shame on us for having any other divisions than that in our heart and our mind. Ever. Because God has called all men to receive His Savior. All men everywhere. That's who God wants to repent. All men, everywhere. And that is the scope of the mission of the church. All men, everywhere.